0: All right, we turn one final time to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and tonight we are going to read verses 6 through 10. 6 through 10. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let's pray again. Lord, we do need the assistance of your Spirit tonight. We know that... The Scripture is profitable for all things, but to the one with a hard heart, Lord, there is no hope unless Christ should come and illuminate His Word through the power of Thy Spirit. And so I pray that You would do that, that You would give us understanding, and that we would see the glorious truth of the rest You've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to the end of our exposition. We've gone through a lot of material. And I hope that tonight will be a culmination of everything that we've put in so far in these past five weeks. The entire point of tonight's discussion will be to show that there is a Christian Sabbath and why there is a Christian Sabbath. And to do so, let's consider briefly where we have been so far in our expositions. You remember that the author begins by showing us that in the gospel there is, in fact, a new rest to be entered into in Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated that David spoke of that rest in the psalm, Psalm 95, in his day. And then the author verifies that in chapter 4, verse 3, the fact that there is a rest for us to enter when he says, for we who have believed enter that rest, that gospel rest. So he's demonstrating that it is the believer, it is belief, that gains one entrance into the rest spoken of by David. And that is a wonderful truth, that we have a rest in Jesus Christ. But as far as the whole picture of God's rest are concerned, it's not in and of itself complete because it begs some questions. It begs us to go back and to connect this Gospel rest that he keeps talking about with the other rests that God has offered to men in history. And that's what we've done over the past few weeks. We have gone back to creation and we've gone back to Canaan. And each time we've seen that God did indeed offer a rest to man. But the rests that he offered to Adam and to the people of Israel were only available because God himself had previously done a work and rested. And it was on that basis that man was given a, day, sorry, a rest to enter into. And in both cases, God also gave a Sabbath day to man to show that he was serious about their being able to rest with him. And so if all of that is true that every time God has offered man a rest, he has done so because he himself has first worked and rested, then when the author speaks of this new rest that we may enter, would we not expect that this rest also has as its foundation a prior work and rest of God, and that it might be accompanied by a Sabbath day. And that's what we're going to prove tonight. That there is, in fact, a new work of God and a new rest that ground the rest that we are offered in the gospel, and that a Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, also accompanies that rest. And we're going to open up verses 9 and 10 will be the heart of our focus this evening. We're going to open up these two verses under two headings. First, a Sabbath day remains. That will correspond to verse 9, a Sabbath day remains. And then secondly, we will look at the work and rest of Christ in verse 10. So we come to verse 9. Once again, it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I want to start out by explaining how verse 9 is normally interpreted by people. And I think that so, in so doing, we will be able to clearly draw a contrasting comparison between the interpretation that we're going to be offering... And the usual interpretation of this verse. This interpretation is one that I used to hold. I I think that anyone who's worked through this text probably is familiar with the interpretation that I'm about to present. And it is as follows. The word Sabbath here, translated as either Sabbath or Sabbath rest in your Bible in verse 9, is just a word that means rest. And so this verse is saying that there remains a rest for God's people in the New Testament and that rest is Jesus Christ. We rest in Christ because Christ is our Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. We rest in a person, not on a day. So there remains a rest for the people of God. Now you see the dichotomy that's being drawn there between resting in Christ and resting on a day. And the natural conclusion of this interpretation is that the Sabbath, as a 24-hour period of resting observance, has been done away with for New Testament believers. And hence what we do on Sundays when we gather together corporately to worship, eh, we do so simply out of Christian tradition. Christians have usually gathered for worship on Sunday and so we do as well, but there's nothing inherently significant about Sunday. Uh, We could just as easily gather on Tuesday if that were the day that most people had off from work in our society. If you take this interpretation of that verse, there's not much that binds you to worship on Sunday. Now, what's the problem with that interpretation, that verse 9 is just saying, we rest in Christ? Well, it requires you to read the word translated as Sabbath or Sabbath rest in your ESV as just a word indicating general rest, not a term describing one day in seven being set aside for religious observance. But is that the case? Does this word just refer to general rest? I believe that it does not. Now, the Greek word we're talking about here is sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. And you can hear the word Sabbath in it when I say it. Sabbatismos. Now, does that word refer to rest in general? Well, perhaps it does, given that, well, even a Sabbath day, when you consider it, is just a rest. But if you limit the word to that meaning, to a plain rest, not a one day in seven, then you lose the thrust of what this word is intending to communicate. I would suggest, and I don't do this on my own authority, so really it's not me who's suggesting, this is based on many centuries of fine scholarship, that this word is a technical term that refers not just to a rest in general, but to a ritual one day in seven observance of rest. It refers to setting aside a day for God's worship. Now, let's see this. If we look back to the Greek Septuagint, and the Greek Septuagint, what is that? That was the Greek translation. I think we've mentioned this in sermons before. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So, in other words, a group of men took the Hebrew Bible a couple of hundred years before Christ was born, and they decided, we want to translate it into Greek. Because now that Alexander the Great is taking over the world, he's infiltrating Greek as the common language of the people. And so we need to take the Hebrew Bible and put it in the common language, into Greek. And so, when our New Testament authors quote the Hebrew Bible, you run into that all the time, they quote the Old Testament, what they are quoting is not the original Hebrew written by Isaiah or Moses or someone like that. They are quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek Septuagint. Now, why does that matter? Because if you want to know the biblical background of a word that is used in the New Testament, you typically will want to look at how that word was used in the Greek copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, let's do that. Let's see how sabbatismos is used in the Old Testament in the Greek translation. Consider Exodus 1630. In our English version, it reads as follows. The people rested on the seventh day. They rested. That word rested is Sabbathessend, on the seventh day. That is the verbal form of our word that we're talking about in Hebrews. Now notice, the rest that the people are doing is what? It says they rested on the seventh day. They are setting aside one day in seven for ritual observance. It's not a state of rest that they're entering into. They rest on a day for religious reasons. It's a ritual thing. When I say ritual, we often think of, like, wizardry or sorcery. It's not bad. It's just a a habitual thing. Consider Leviticus 23, 32. There we're speaking of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And we read this. It, the Day of Atonement, shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, this passage is interesting. Because it says that the Day of Atonement must be celebrated as a Sabbath. And that's our word there, sabbatismos. It must be celebrated as a Sabbath. Even though six out of every seven years, the Day of Atonement didn't actually take place on the Sabbath day. The seventh day. It would fall on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, some other day of the week, most days out of the year. And yet God says you will observe this day, which usually wasn't a Sabbath day, as a Sabbath day. As a a sabbatismos. Now, what does that indicate? That the Sabbath, as a general concept, sabbatismos, is referring to what? A ritual observance of a day of rest for religious purposes. And that's what the Day of Atonement was. It was a day appointed by God to be observed every year by the people of Israel. They set aside a 24-hour period. All right, now... There are plenty of other instances where that word is used in the Old Testament. And if we went through them all, I think we'd see the exact same thing in each instance. But let's move forward then and see what the other word for rest is in Greek. We've just seen sabbatismos. That's a ritual observance. But there is another word in Greek that refers to rest or general rest. And that term is kataposis. Kataposis. It refers to a general rest, and that can mean one of two things. Either a leisurely rest that humans engage in when they're tired, or an extended state of resting, not necessarily sleeping, or physical rest, but a a state of religious rest that extends for a long period of time. Now, when we talk about a leisurely rest, that's one thing that this word can refer to. That's the kind of thing I do when I'm tired and I want to take a nap. I go and rest. That's a general rest. It's something that can be done anytime and anywhere and for any reason. It's not connected with any specific religious worship. When I rest in a leisurely sense, I'm not doing so because God commanded me to or that uh, there's some strict pattern of taking a nap that God is requiring me to follow. It's not as if God told me, uh, you shall nap every three days as a part of your worship of me. No, I'm just resting because I want to. I'm tired. We all know this. Kataposis can refer to that type of resting. Now, there's also a state of rest that can be entered into. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, for example, after the six days of creation, God is said to have entered rest. And the state of rest, which he still abides in today, having finished his work, is referred to in Genesis chapter 2 in the Greek translation with the word kataposis. God entered a state of rest. Israel was to enter a katapausis in the land of Canaan. We talked about that. God offered Israel a rest in the land. It wasn't a Sabbath. Well, He did offer them a Sabbath, but He also offered them a state of rest that was independent from the Sabbath, and that rest is referred to with the term katapausis. Now, why are we going through all this stuff about Greek words? Because think for just a moment. Our verse, verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 4, says that there remains a rest or a Sabbath rest for God's people. And if the typical interpretation of this verse is correct, that all it means is we enter a general rest in Christ, a state of rest, then what word would we expect to see in this verse? Kata pasis. Because that word is used to indicate entering a general state of rest. And is that not how most people view this verse? It is. It's how I used to view it. But that is not the word that is used here. He uses the term sabbatismos. And what have we seen? That that word is used to refer not to a general state of rest, but for man's observing a religious rest that is instituted for him by God. A day of rest, not a state of rest. Do you see the difference? Now, if you want even further proof of this, just consider how the author uses both of the two Greek words that we've been talking about in our passage. He uses the rest, the word rest, many different times. And so far, before we've gotten to verse 9, every time that the author has used the word rest or referred to it in any way, he has used one word, kata, posis, a state of rest. But all of a sudden, we get to verse 9, and then he switches. He says, sabbatismos, sabbath rest, instead of general rest. Now, let me go back through and just real quickly read the text to you in English. But every time that the word rest appears, I'm going to read it as the Greek word for rest being used in the original language. See if you can't detect the impact of what the author is doing here. I'll start in chapter 3, verse 11. This is a quotation from the Psalm: "As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my catapasis." We skip down to verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter catapasis because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his catapasis still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For we who have believed enter that catapasis, as he has said: "As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my catapasis." For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested, or katapostized, to put it in the verbal form, on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my kataposis. Since therefore it remains for some to enter kataposis, he again appoints a certain day today. For if Joshua had given them kataposis, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a sabbatismus for the people of God. And then after that, we read in verse 10, "For whoever has entered God's catapasis has also catapostized from his work. Do you see the switch? It's obvious. Now, why would he do that? Thirteen times we have a reference to rest as catapauses, and then all of a sudden in verse nine, he switches, and then he goes back to it again after verse nine. What does that tell you? That the rest being spoken of in verse nine is not a general rest in Christ. We do have that. That does exist. It is a biblical thing. But it's not what he's talking about here. He says Sabbatismos, a Sabbath day remains. A 24 hour ritual observance of rest remains in the new covenant for God's people. There's no way around it according to the grammar of the text. All right, now that we have established that. What is that? That there remains a Sabbath day. I want you to see real quickly why the author's statement that a Sabbath rest remains follows logically from what he said in verses 6 through 8. Those are the verses we looked at last week. Because the first two verses of verse 9 are so then, which means what? That the conclusion being drawn is being drawn from what came before. So let's quickly review what we said about verses 6 through 8 last week. And I know it was a little difficult at the end to follow. Those are some very difficult verses to interpret. And I'm not going to go into as much detail this time. But I would encourage you, as we briefly, over the next 30 to 45 seconds, go through this. Make sure you look at a Bible. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to look at a Bible. So that you can really see these verses. It's hard to conceptualize all this without looking at a text. So, what did verses 6 through 8 teach us? If we could boil it all down. This that God gave Israel a day in the land of Canaan. And that term day means that He gave them two things a rest to enter, they got to enter the rest of the land, and a Sabbath, they got two things. But many failed to enter God's appointed Canaan rest because of disobedience. And so, therefore, verse 7 says, God again appoints a certain day. And this day, which is referring to the gospel, just like Israel's day in Canaan, contained two things, a rest that we enter into in Christ and a Sabbath. And David spoke of this day of the gospel In the psalm, he called it today. And since God is appointing a new day, and the days that he gives to men always include a state of rest and a Sabbath day, then what is the natural conclusion of verse 9? Therefore, there remains a Sabbath day or a Sabbath rest. Because God is giving us a new version and a better version of what Israel had, and Israel had a Sabbath, therefore, verse 9 there remains a Sabbath rest. But all of that hinges on you understanding that the term day refers both to a rest to enter into and a Sabbath. All right, now, that's verse 9. The apostle has concluded that an actual Sabbath day remains. It's not just a rest in Christ. We have that. But there is a Sabbath itself. So, that's it right there. That's all the proof that we should need that there is a Sabbath in the New Testament. He says it in verse 9. It's not confusing, at least not the statement. But then he gives us, in verse 10, some extra proof, some extra grounding, reasons why there needs to be a Sabbath in the New Covenant. That brings us to the second point of tonight's sermon, the work and rest of Christ. Look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest... As rested from his works as God did from his. Now, once again, this verse starts with the word for, indicating that it explains why there is a Sabbath rest. Now, just like we did with verse 9, I want to go ahead and refresh our memory on how most people interpret this verse before we actually lay out our interpretation. How did most people interpret verse 10? Something like this. This passage, or sorry, this verse, is talking about believers. That word, whoever, refers to believers. And the verse is saying that whenever a believer enters God's rest, he rests from his own works. The believer's works, just like God rested from his works in creation. Now, according to that interpretation, what are the works that a believer would be resting from when he enters God's gospel rest? Most people hear the word work, and they jump to what context? Paul's discussion of works in Romans or Galatians or any of the other epistles, really. And in those contexts, Paul is arguing that the works of the law or works of self-righteous law-keeping cannot justify a person. And so we are used to thinking of works when we hear it from the human perspective as things that men do to try and obey the law and earn their way to salvation or to heaven And if that's what you're thinking when you read this verse, that that someone has rested from their works, then the verse is teaching that when man enters God's rest, he ceases from trying to do self-justifying works to earn his way to heaven, and that he rests in Christ as the only one who can justify him. Do you understand that interpretation? Man, or the believer, enters God's rest and rests from his works of law so that he can rest in Christ. That's what most people think the verse means. And it's not theologically wrong. That is all very well and true. But obviously you can tell we're going to disagree with this popular interpretation. And I think we have sound grounds for doing so. Let me begin with this. Even though your ESV, and I do love the ESV, it's my Bible of choice. Even though your ESV says or translates it as whoever has entered God's rest. There is no word for whoever in the original Greek. If you were to literally translate the Greek, it would come across as he who. For he who has entered God's rest. That's a singular. Now, why then does the ESV render our verse as whoever when the original words are he who? Well, there's a couple of things. First, obviously the translator very clearly believes that this verse is referring to believers. That's how they interpret the verse. But secondly, they just think it sounds better. That's all it comes down to. They think it sounds less awkward in English to say whoever instead of he who. It's a stylistic thing. Now, those of you who are familiar with issues of Reformed theology and Arminianism may well know that there's, a very other, there's another very popular place in the scriptures where we run into this exact issue. And that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But in John 3.16, there is no word for whosoever in the original language. So then, why why do they think that? What does it actually say? It says, all the ones believing. God gave His Son in order that all of the believing ones would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the original language actually says. The reason, like I said, that translators use whosoever or whoever is because they think it flows more naturally in English. And so whosoever is not a wrong translation as long as you rightly understand what the original text is saying. But there is no word in our text whoever. It's he who. And that is important. Because the he spoken of here is singular. And so far in the book of Hebrews, not just our text, but all the way through, every single time that the author has referred to believers, he has always referred to them in the plural, never in the singular. Let me take you just back through our passage and show you this pattern. If you look back at verses 12 through 14, we see... Take care, brothers, or believers, that's plural, lest there be in any of you, and that you is plural, referring to believers, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you all to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another as long as it is called today. For we, that's believers, plural, have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. Then you skip down to verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Then you go to verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear. That's a plural word for believers. Verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them. That's another plural for believers. Verse 3, For we who have believed, we believers in the plural. Then in verse 11, Let us therefore strive. You see that every time... The author refers to believers. He refers to them in the plural. And we could go all the way back to chapter 1 of this text and show that all the way through. We won't just for the sake of time. So then why, if the author intends this verse, verse 10, to be talking about believers, would he all of a sudden switch and refer to them in the singular? The only time he does it. Well, I don't think he is. But I think there's one other stronger reason why the person spoken of here is not a believer. And that has to do with the works of the person. The text says that the one who has entered God's rest has rested from his works. So there's a parallel being drawn between the, the way that the person spoken of here rests from his works and the way that God rested from his own works at creation. Because the person here who has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his now think back to creation for just a moment. God created in six days, and then Genesis 2, 2 tells us that God rested. He entered rest. And what was the manner of His resting? In Exodus 31-17, the Lord speaks to Israel about the Sabbath day, and He says this, The Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Satisfied. So when the Lord entered His rest on the seventh day, He rested from His works so as to be refreshed by them. In other words, the works that He was resting from were pleasing to Him. They had to be or God couldn't be refreshed by them. And of course, we also see that in the fact that God declared His works to be good when He had finished them. So God rested from His works in such a way as to take delight by them, implying that they were good things, things that pleased Him. And our verse says that the one who enters God's rest is resting from his works in the same way that God did at creation. Now, think for a second. If the works spoken of here are a believer's self-righteous works, then they are what? Sin. They are wicked things. Would a believer be able to rest in such a way as to look back upon those works and take delight in them? Of course not. Because when a believer, when you and I rest from our wicked and sinful works, we do not rest so as to glory in them and to be refreshed by them. We look back on them and we abhor those works. We put them to death. We do not declare them to be a good thing as God declared His works. But the person spoken of here is able to rest from His works so as to take delight in them, just like God did. So then what's going on? Well, like I said, I don't think it's a believer who's being spoken of here. I think there's someone else in view, and that someone has performed good works and delighted in them. Christ. Now let's look at the work of Christ. Remember last week when we looked at Canaan, we said that the the rest offered in Canaan began with a new work of God. And that work of God where He created the people of Israel echoed the creation of the world. And it's very telling that when the New Testament speaks of the work of Jesus Christ, it also describes that work in the language of creation. But this time, it's not the old creation. The Bible shows us that a new creation has begun. Consider the following passages. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we all know it, says, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Behold, the old is gone, and the new has come. Now that's not just a cute phrase to quote or to put on your bumper sticker or your Facebook wall. It means something, something significant. That Christ has come and that the central and crowning aspect of His work is that He is instituting a new creation. It's not the same creation we had in Genesis chapter 1. It's the beginning of a new one. Galatians 5, 6, sorry, Galatians 6.15 says, Neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything but a new creation. What is Paul saying there? That in the new covenant, the physical marks that you bear on your body are irrelevant. They are of no value whatsoever. You can be circumcised. You can be uncircumcised. That's meaningless before God in terms of your righteousness. But what does count, what does matter, is the new creation inside of you. In other words, what counts is not, not what sets a man apart outwardly as belonging to one group or another, but what Christ is doing Renewing the man within. Christ's work is a new creation. How about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now we hear that passage all the time, but have you ever considered how significant that statement is? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's that language pointing us back to Genesis 1 all over again. Christ comes to create just like God did in creation, and you and I are the result of that work. And in this passage, we even get a glimpse into the purpose of this new creation. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but, but why did Christ do it? Why did He come and do a new work of creation? So that we, what? Would walk in good works in purity, and in holiness. We are to reflect the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why He's created us. Now, in that very same epistle, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we read, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And there you have it again. We are created, and we are a new self. If something that is old is made new then those new aspects have to be created. And so we have a righteousness and a holiness that was not there before, which means that those things had to be created within us. We are Christ's workmanship in His creation. One more text, sorry, two more texts. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, He, Christ, is the firstborn of all creation. So there you see Christ being in the beginning of the old creation. He's the firstborn. For by Him were all things created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So what does that teach us? That Christ was the center point of even the old creation. But then we keep reading. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The beginning of what? The new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, earlier in the text, it said that he was the firstborn of all creation. But now he's called the firstborn from the dead, which implies what? That when Christ rises from the dead, a new creation is inaugurated. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, and so you see the connection between the resurrection and Christ's new creation. And in the passage we've read before, uh, told us about being a new creation, and what was He creating us for, or sorry, how did He create us? He resurrected us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's how the new creation operates through resurrection. And then finally, one more text as to Christ's work being described as a new creation. In Revelation 3.14, we read Christ speaking to the church at Laodicea. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Christ calls His churches God's new creation. So there you see it. God did a work of creation in the beginning... And Christ comes, and He does a new work of creation. But Christ's new creation is not just limited to the new creatures that you and I are made into. That's the beginning of it. Christ's new creation extends beyond the souls of men, and it will one day encompass the entire cosmos. Isaiah himself spoke before Christ was ever born about this. He said in Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth... And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Peter also spoke of this this cosmic implication of the new creation in Christ in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed There's the old creation being destroyed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away. Now, here it is. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which dwells righteousness. You see, Peter spoke. He saw. The future in which Christ's new creation, of which he was a recipient of the work, he had the new nature within him, he saw it's not just going to stay within me or within the bodies of the church members. The entire cosmos will be encompassed by Christ's new work of creation. But Peter could only see it from afar. Somebody else got to see it firsthand in a vision. That's John. And hear what he says of it in Revelation chapter 5. Death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that is Christ, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christ says that. I am making all things new. This is His work. It's His new creation. And it will extend to the entirety of the cosmos. But do notice something interesting, just as a side note. Notice the order of how Christ's creation work compares to the work in Genesis. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth first, and then man is created as the the final crowning element of that original creation. He had earth first, then man. But when Christ comes, He reverses it, doesn't He? First is the renovation of the inward man. He begins by creating spiritual beings. And then he culminates his creation in the renovation of the heavens and the earth. Now, why the difference? Because now sin has entered. And if Christ is to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth, he must first appear to put away sin. And that starts in the heart of man. Man must be dealt with first because it's his sin which gives rise to the need for a new creation in the first place. So he must be dealt with. And then I'll give you one final evidence that the work of Christ in the New Testament is in fact tied to the idea of creation. When did Christ rise from the dead? First day of the week. We read in Matthew 28.1 that after the Sabbath and toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. It's the first day of the week. And the first day of the week is mentioned only once more in the entirety of the Bible. There are a couple of places in the Gospels, where, it, but it's always connected with the resurrection. But outside of talking about Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week is mentioned only one other time. Now that just seems strange. I mean, the Bible's a big book and it talks all the time about when things occurred and what days things happened on and uh, months and weeks and all that stuff. But the first day of the week is only mentioned again in Genesis chapter 1. After God began to create, the Bible says that there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And what did God create on the first day? Light. He said, let there be light. And if you pay close attention, you will notice that the New Testament associates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crowning element of His work, with the coming of light. We read, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun first began to give its light, they went to the tomb. At the first day of the week, at the rising of the sun, they began to go to the tomb. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the light of the first day, the prophets and Moses said that it must come to pass that Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to both Jews and Gentiles. The mystery of God has now been manifested in the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. And, of course, John speaks of the coming of Christ and says that He is the light which lighteneth the world. So the scripture very clearly teaches that the work of Christ that He begins is one of creation. It's creation. Now, remember why we just went on that excursion into the work of Christ and its connection to creation. We're dealing with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10, and we're arguing that the person spoken of is Christ, because that person is said to have performed works and then rested from them as God rested from His works in creation. And God rested from His works, so as to take delight in them. So, if the work that Christ has done is the establishment of a new creation, then we must ask the question are Christ's works of such a nature that he may rest from them and then be delighted by them. what did Isaiah say? He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Christ rested from his work of establishing the new creation and he took delight in what he had done. So we've seen Christ's work And our text also says that the one who has rested from his work has entered God's rest. So Christ rested from his work. He established a new creation and he rested from it so as to enter God's rest. But when did this happen? When did Christ enter his rest or rest from his works? This is an important question. Why? Because... In the first creation, when God rested from his works, the day that he rested became what? The Sabbath day for man. So, if Christ is the one spoken of in this passage and he is said to have rested from his works in the new creation, what would we expect to see? That when he rests, we are given a Sabbath day. Now, if we were to ask most Christians when Christ entered His rest or rested from His works, most people would probably give us one of two things, either when He was resting in the tomb or when He ascended into heaven. And I would argue that it's neither of them. Now, as for the first, Christ did not begin to rest from His work when He was in the tomb because the tomb was still a part of His work. How so? But well, what was Christ's work? He was to redeem those who were under the power of sin. And he had to be made a curse on their behalf in order to suffer the penalties due to their sin. That's why Peter declares that Christ was not loosed from the pangs of death until his resurrection. In Acts 2.24, Peter says, Christ, whom God has raised up, loosing him from the pains of death. The resurrection was the end of Christ's sufferings for the punishment due to sinners because death is a curse of the law and Christ had to bear death in order to complete his work. So while he's dead, he's still working even if his body is passive. He also did not enter his rest when he ascended into heaven. If you say he did, you're equating rest exclusively with heaven So that Christ enters his rest when he enters heaven. But if you remember two weeks ago, we argued that since the entrance of sin into the world, rest is not exclusively to be found in heaven. It was for Adam, but not for us. That for men, we enter gospel rest in this life. And it culminates in our rest in heaven, yes. But there is a rest to be found on this earth. In other words, to enter rest is one thing. To enter glory is another so when did Christ enter His rest? Well, we alluded to it already. He rested from His work in the resurrection. Because it was there in the resurrection when the Son of God was brought to life that He was freed from the curse of the law and He was made under it in order to complete the work of securing our redemption. It was at His resurrection that He transitioned from laying the foundations of His work to then upholding or preserving his work, Just as when God entered his rest at creation, he then undertook the work of preserving or upholding it by providence. So Christ upholds the new creation in his resurrection. And Christ's work was finished, and he rested from it on the first day of the week. And that is why the Christian Sabbath is on the first day of the week. It's the day that Christ rested from all of His work in the new creation. So, that leaves us with just one issue to deal with. The question that I know many of you have raised, and and it's the issue that kept me from recognizing the Christian Sabbath for quite a while, and it's this. Even if we have proved that Christ has worked and He has rested from that work on the first day of the week, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments And it's part of God's moral law, and God's moral law does not change. So even if all of the stuff about Christ's work and rest is true, then how can the day itself change from the seventh day of the week to the first? How can moral law change? Well, if you examine our confession, and you were to read its discussion of the Sabbath, which technically you all said you've done, you will notice that it makes a very interesting assertion about the Sabbath. It says this, God has appointed in a positive, moral, perpetual commandment that one day in seven be set apart for a Sabbath to be kept holy to Him. Now, notice that language. It calls the Sabbath a positive and moral commandment. Now we know what a moral commandment is. It's the law that God gives which is inherently based upon His nature and upon the nature of man as made in His image. So because God is truth, it is inherently sinful to tell a lie. It is a moral law that man must tell the truth because of who God is. God is the truth. And because God is the only God, that's His nature, men will not worship any God but Him. That's a moral law. And those things are summarized in the Ten Commandments. We know what those are. But what is a positive law? What is a positive law? Those are things that God commands men to obey that are not inherently necessary based upon God's nature. God may be pleased to require man to obey other commandments besides the Ten Moral Commandments. The classic example of this is the command that he gave to Adam in the garden. You shall not eat of the tree. There was nothing inherent in the laws of nature or in God's being that said that Adam couldn't eat of that tree. It wasn't a moral law, but God decided to bind it on him anyway. He gave him a positive law. You can think of positive as in addition to. You have the moral laws, and then in addition to, you have positive laws, anything else that God decides to bind upon Adam. And positive laws can change. They can be enforced for one period of time and then abrogated according to God's purposes. All of the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses were positive laws, additional laws that God put in place for a time and a season. Now, the Sabbath is both moral and positive. What is the moral component of the Sabbath? That men, by their very nature, are obligated to set aside time to worship God. They owe Him worship. That is inherent to their being and God's being. They must worship Him. That is moral and unchanging. But what is the positive law? When? How long? Those aspects of the law are things that are not inherent to the created order. They are entirely up to God to determine when man will gather to worship Him corporately is up to God to determine as He pleases Him. And at creation, God chose to bind the seventh day of the week on men. And in doing so, the Sabbath became a moral and positive law. It was moral in that man owed God a time of worship, and the Sabbath commanded him to do that. But the day of worship, the specific day when man was to do it, was a positive aspect of the law. There was nothing inherent in God that said it had to be the seventh day. In other words, God had freedom. He was Lord over the Sabbath. And when Christ comes, He says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. And when He rises again on the first day of the week and rests from His work, He initiates a change, a positive change in the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. And why did He choose the first day? Because it was the day that proclaimed the new creation and a new rest that man may enter into. A rest better than what Adam would promise. It was promised. And as an aside, all the Sabbath laws that were given specifically to the nation of Israel that we mentioned last week, like not picking up sticks and, and having to bring certain sacrifices, those were all positive laws connected to the Sabbath that God put in place for a time and a season, but they can be done away with because they are not moral laws. So you've already seen in the scriptures itself implicitly that the Sabbath has all sorts of positive laws that come for a time and then go away. So it should not be that crazy to us to imagine that the positive aspects of the law can change, including the day that it is set for. And yet people get all out of sorts over this. All right. That's our two verses for tonight. So then, since this is the last address from this text of Scripture, let's put it all together in the last two or three minutes here. Everything we've seen in this series summarized from start to finish And it's this. From the very beginning of redemptive history, going all the way back to creation, God has performed certain significant redemptive works such that when He finishes, He enters rest from them. And then He offers man a chance to join Him in His rest if he will obey a covenant that God imposes upon him. And in addition to the opportunity for man to enter rest with Him, God also gives man a 24-hour Sabbath day as a tangible pledge that God will indeed allow him to join rest. That's the pattern we keep seeing. Every time a state of rest is promised to man, a Sabbath is given as a pledge of it. We saw it in creation. We saw it in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And yet David prophesied that the rest of Israel was not the ultimate one. There was another rest God had in mind for man, another one yet to come, and Christ was the one who would come and establish it. He would give it to man, but the rest that God offers to men are based upon God's having done a work and rested himself, so when Christ comes and he gives this new rest that David spoke of, he must first do a work and enter rest himself. And the work that Christ does, as we have seen, is the establishment of the new creation. Both the new creatures in Christ, the humans who are renewed in God's image, and the creation itself, the cosmos. All things are going to be made new. That is the great work of Christ. And Christ finished His work and rested from it when He was raised from the dead. And He now offers rest to man in the form, or by means of, a new covenant, because remember, whenever God offers rest to man, it's done by way of covenant, and yet unlike the covenant of the garden or the Mosaic covenant, which were broken by sinful men, this covenant is kept by Christ Himself on behalf of the believer. It is not subject to the follies of sinful men, and thus Christ has secured an eternal redemption. And because Christ holds forth rest to you and I in the new covenant, He, like His Father before Him, gives man a Sabbath day as a pledge, as His promise to them that they will indeed enter His rest. And just like Israel's Sabbath day, this Christian Sabbath looks back to two things, both the work of creation, Christ's creation, and redemption the redemption offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our doctrine. There remains a Sabbath rest. And so many people will over and over say that the New Testament says nothing about a Sabbath day for believers. But it's right here. It's right in front of your eyes. It could not be more plainly stated. Despite all the difficulties that we had to go through in the Old Testament and all the background and all of that stuff, the conclusion itself is plain. There remains a Sabbath rest. That's why you're here today. You're here because Christ has given you this day as a pledge of the redemption that he has secured for you, believer. It is a gift. It is not just a doctrine that Covenant Bible Church or the Puritans came up with and want to bind upon your conscience to make you feel or to make ourselves feel doctrinally pure Christ gives you this day as a tangible reminder that He is your Redeemer. And as your Redeemer, He has secured for you a divine rest, one that washes away all of your sins. Your most wretched sin has been done away with, and you have a righteousness that comes from the perfection of the work of the Son of God Himself. And this day, this Sabbath day, is meant to allow you to stop lusting after the world for just 24 hours and rejoice in the glories of Christ. That's why some of the Puritans refer to this as the third sacrament, because it's a tangible reminder, just like the Lord's Supper and baptism, something you can get your hands on, so to speak. It's, It's your day. You can use it, and it reminds you, I am redeemed. Christ is glorious. And when you observe this day in vain, when your thoughts constantly flutter from one thing to the next other than Christ, vain things are going to pass away when this earth burns. You are saying, Christ is all right, but I'd rather have something out there because I can't even enjoy, enjoy, not, not burden myself with, I can't enjoy one day in seven that He's given to me. Christian, when your feet hit the ground on the Lord's day, You should have a joy that the world knows nothing of. Because this is His day, and hence it's your day. And in it, you get to rest from all the labors of this life. And your ability to put away the concerns of the world and enjoy Christ is a wonderful litmus test of your progress in sanctification. It's a wonderful litmus test. If you ever want to know where you stand spiritually, all you've got to do is consider where your thoughts go when your feet hit the floor each Lord's Day morning, and you'll know. We were talking just yesterday at men's group about people who can't even bear to sit through worship on the Lord's Day because it might run two minutes past the hour, and those pastors know that they've got to get people out of the door in the promised time frame, or they're going to get an angry email, and an angry phone call later in the week. And such people have no concept of what this day is, or what it means to long for the manifestation of the Son of God and His second coming. They're self-obsessed, and they are worshipers of their time and their carnal desires. And you know why? It's real simple. They're lost. And maybe you are too. You see, religion is real easy when it comes in the silver slippers of comfort and ease. But when it costs you something... Then, the Son of God, the sons of God are made manifest. When communion with Christ actually costs you something, and what do you have in this world that is more valuable than your time? It ain't money. You can have all the money in the world, but you got five hours to live, it's worthless to you. It gives you no value. It's the most valuable thing that the natural man has, his time, because when it's up, he's got nothing left. The game is over, and that's why he clings to it so desperately. And so if the Lord's day, observing the Lord's day bothers you, I fear that you are nothing but a natural man who enjoys playing at religion. But will you get exposed whenever God points his finger at your most precious graven image, time? Whoever tries to save his time will lose it. But whoever will lose his time for the sake of rejoicing in Christ will find an eternal Sabbath waiting for him. So that concludes our study. I thank you for attention and I thank you for your patience with me and I pray that you see that the Lord's Day is at the very heart of Christ's plan for His church in this life. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and we know that Christ has come and that He's accomplished a redemption that is perfect, that we have a high priest who intercedes for us and secures a redemption that cannot be taken away. And I pray that we would come to love more and more the Lord's day, the tangible pledge that we will indeed enter the eternal rest where Christ is. Lord, I pray that you would put our sins to death and that we would stop, that I would stop running after the things of this world and its trinkets, all of which will be cast into the fire. Only that which is done for Christ will stand, Lord. Help us to live in light of it and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you and we pray these things for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen.